My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and an MBA graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankham, who will host this week's interview. All right. I want to welcome Paul McKinnon to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. How are you? Fine, thanks. Awesome. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming over to the house. Yeah, this is cool. You know, typically I do these remotely and just happen to be in the area. And I said, hey, why don't I swing by instead of uh, getting away from Zoom and whatnot? So, very so nice. here we are. This is great. <laughs> nice. And uh, we're in downtown Salt Lake area. And, and where are you originally from? I grew up in California in the Bay Area. Okay. And a pretty traditional Latter-day Saint family? Or? Yeah. I guess my father was traditional. He'd been raised, both my mother and my father were from Evanston, but he uh, found his way there. Actually, what changed it was he went on, in the 30s, he went on a mission to France. Um and this is a guy who thought of Salt Lake in the 30s as the biggest city he'd ever seen. And and Paris changed everything for him. <laughs> yeah. Just changed everything. Part of it was committed to the gospel. Part of it was, look what's out here. Mm-hmm. And so he couldn't wait to get off the ranch and graduated with an engineering degree from Wyoming and just yeah. found some great jobs and we ended up in a great spot. Yeah. And uh, growing up, I mean, did you know from an early age what you wanted to do professionally or? No, didn't have a clue. Uh, in fact, I've never had a clue. Um, <laughs> you know, when people uh, come in to talk to me for advice and some younger ones come in and say, I'm not sure what I want to do. I go, so you're just like the rest of us, right? <laughs> Very few people have a sense of, wow, I want to dedicate my life to being a doctor. Doctors do it very well, but most people, they enjoy what they're doing, but yeah, there's always something out there they think might be more interesting. Yeah. And when you reflect back to your high school years, was there a certain subject or topic that came to the surface for you? No, I was not a great student in high school. Um, and so I wasn't uh, I was better at the social sciences, better at English, better uh, at history and folk. In fact, those ended up being what I studied in college. Yeah. And um, when it came time for you to graduate high school, what was the plan at that point? You know, it's so interesting because I was talking to somebody about this the other day that my grades were not good. Mm -hmm. um, And I didn't particularly want to go to BYU. This was in uh, 1968. And uh, fortunately, I... um, Uh, I test well uh, because my grades weren't great and because I tested well enough that University of California at Santa Barbara let me in. Um, And I didn't know what I wanted to do. In fact, I was so ill-equipped that when they asked me, what's your major, they ask you at this thing, and I had no idea what a major was except that I knew my older sister had been an English major. I wrote down English, um, <laughs> and, and I kind of followed that, um, and then I added a second major to it, which was 
history, yeah. which I really liked as well. Nice. And then how long did you spend at that college? I spent, um, let's see, I was two years at Santa Barbara. And then, you know, remarkably, I got called uh, to be uh, a French missionary. In fact, my brother had been a French missionary before me. I got called to France and my son uh, also got a French missionary, uh, became a French missionary. Oh, wow. So I was in, uh, in and around Paris for two years, came back to Santa Barbara my junior year, and that's when it began to dawn on me that a history and English major was not going to be uh, a lucrative uh, <laughs> career. And so I transferred to BYU because at the time they had a master's program in organizational behavior. And I finished up my undergraduate. And because I didn't have a lot of confidence in my own ability, I thought if I got up there at BYU during that last year, I could talk my way into this program, which did it work? I did. Oh, yeah, good. <laughs> which, uh, which I did. Um, I think um, I overly worried uh, about whether I could make it, but but I got in, and I was two years there, and that was that was probably the first time that I began to think I could make a profession, I could do something in this world of organization studies, um, and for somebody who um, thought he could. Um, uh, who had a hard time figuring out what he wanted to do. I really kind of fell in love with these professors and thought, wow, that's kind of a perfect thing. Um, and so that's why I went on to MIT to get a, a, a PhD because yeah. I thought I'd be in academics yeah. my whole life. And, and MIT came right after you graduated from BYU? Right after I graduated from BYU. Nice. Yeah. So you said in high school, you, you weren't a very good student. Along the way, did you feel like you figured out how to be a good student? No. Well, uh, I, I, I figured out how to get good grades. Mm -hmm. um, and But because I was pretty sure that I wasn't smart, but I figured out I, I could, I know how to make this work, right? I can mm -hmm. figure out. So I had a little process that I'd go through with the, you know, faculty members for every class. At the time at Santa Barbara, they were 10-week quarters. I would go visit the professor in week three, let them know who I was, chit-chat, go back in, in week seven, remind them who I was, go back just before the final, and then uh, that's why I got good grades. I was convinced. It had nothing to do that I might actually understand the content. But that's what I, how I thought I was doing well at Santa Barbara. Yeah. And I figured, because I, I thought I figured it out, because my grades were actually quite good when I left there. Uh -huh. um, and, and so your, the hope was that as the more familiar they were with you, they would maybe err yeah, uh, yeah, on mercy. <laughs> I would schmooze them. Err yeah. okay. <laughs> on mercy is a great way to, to describe it. Yes, I would, um, I, I have always been comfortable talking to people and, and I thought that would work, um, <laughs> and it worked. Wow! Right, I could say, but I, I think I could have done it without the schmoozing. But uh, I only know that now. Um, I wasn't sure of it then. Yeah. So graduating from BYU with a degree in organizational behavior, then? Yeah, from BYU, and then at Sloan, um, it was organizational studies. Okay. They called it nice. And what was the, was there much of a? Um, did you apply to a, a variety of graduate schools, or was MIT always the um, focus? 
I applied to, there was a friend of mine um, who also wanted to go, and we thought we needed to, we shouldn't apply to the same places. Mm. Um, and so he wanted to be on the West Coast, I wanted to be on the East Coast, and then we had one school that was in common. Um, and he got into where he wanted to go, and I got accepted at all of my options. And Yeah. And why, why didn't you want to go to the same school? Well, we didn't think they would let us in. They oh, okay. would let two people in from the same program. Oh, gotcha. Right. Okay. That's what we thought. Uh, but as it turned out, we both applied to Berkeley, and we both got into Berkeley. He eventually went to Stanford. I got accepted at Harvard, Yale, and MIT. Yeah. yeah. But not because I was smart, because I had, <laughs> had good recommendations. Yeah. yeah. I had good recommendations. Yeah, obviously, learning to connect with staff and get yeah. them familiar with you, that made asking for recommendations easy absolutely wow that's great uh so starting you're, you're walking to mit thinking i'm going to be a professor uh in organizational studies yep. or whatnot yep. somewhere in the world and yep. um and what, what do you remember for that time at, at mit what what do you, did you learn well, there i walked in there um the last time i had taken a math class was at the the first semester of my junior year, I took a math class in, in uh, high school, right? My, and then I quit taking math uh, because I didn't like it. Um, and so really what I was thinking is I'm walking into a PhD program at MIT and I don't know how to do math. So the first couple of years were a challenge, um, <laughs> trying to get past the quantitative methods stuff. I turned out, I figured out how to do it. I, I learned about myself that I could do it. I didn't particularly enjoy it, but I could do it. Yeah. Um, so I made it through. Yeah. And did you, was there the sense of that you were sort of behind your peers or that you needed to catch up? Um, you know, I was there with two other there. I was there with two other people who were in my my year, um, and both one of them I knew was a lot smarter than me. The other one I thought we was a little closer, um, but neither none of us was particularly enamored of that hardcore quantitative uh, kind of research. The kind I eventually had to learn how to do to write a dissertation, but um, so we um, we kind of felt, you know, like a cohort. Remarkably, only one of us made it through. One was from Brazil. He went back after he, he just finished up, got his master's degree there and left this. The other one, same, he lives in um, upstate New York. And I was the only one who finished. Hmm. With a PhD, yeah, Is that, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't expect that. I um, one of the things I've learned about me is I can't quit if it's hard. Hmm. I can quit for other reasons. If you know this checkered uh, career path that I've had, um, so I'll quit for other reasons. But I I can't quit something if it's hard. Hmm. You know, and is it like a personal challenge? You feel like this is it, it um, sucks you in. It, it's more. I think um, I, I, I'm not entirely sure. It is. 
I can't, I can't, I don't like thinking about me as somebody who quits because it's hard. Mm. I, I just don't have that as a, I don't want that as a descriptor of who I am. Mm. So again, I, I'll quit for other reasons, but not because it's hard. Wow. And is that something you were raised with or comes natural? You know, or? It, I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Um, I would say my father having you know come from really a um a tough background he was just um he was a hard worker at everything he did uh, and i didn't think of myself that way when i was a kid but i i think i picked up that notion that i wanted to be a hard worker right yeah. I, I wanted to be somebody who uh, if i failed and I, this I've been become really clear about. It doesn't bother. It wouldn't bother me to fail. And I'll tell you a story a little bit later. But but as long as I didn't quit. Yeah, and that kept you going for sure. Yeah. And then so graduated. Uh, you have your PhD, MIT. You mentioned that your your career was a bit checkered. Uh, well, I went to University of Virginia and I and I taught there for four years. Actually, I taught there for about two and a half years, and then they fired me. Um, and oh, wow. they, fired, they fired me because I was really not good at what academics really want, which is research. You know, oh, okay. referee journals. And to get into that, for me, it started to get to a side of organizational studies, which I didn't like. I avoided um, writing has always been difficult um, for me. Um, and so they fired me, hmm. you know. And I'll, I had three and a half kids at the time. And, and I will acknowledge that I was a little grumpy about it when it happened. But I... I look back on that as the most important thing that ever happened to me, the best thing that's ever happened to me professionally. And in was, the moment, it didn't feel that way. In the moment, it was awful, right? Because oh. I didn't, I just thought uh, this is what, you know, for the last six or seven years, I thought this is what I'd be doing. Um, and I didn't know what else to do. Hmm. Uh, and so it was high uncertainty. Um, we moved back from there to Boston. I've, I got a job in a consulting firm there in Boston. We did that for five years and then uh, eventually moved to Provo. My parents were failing in California, so I moved to Provo and I commuted back and forth to help take care mm -hmm. of my folks. But when I went to the consulting firm, I thought... Um, I felt like I finally started to play in position, right? Hmm. I felt like in academics, I was actually quite good in the classroom, very much in terms of building a community there, felt great about that. But it was the writing piece that I didn't like, and, uh, it, and I didn't enjoy it, wasn't reinforcing for me. And I started a path where everything I did after that, I was playing in position. 
Now yeah. I'm playing to strengths and not to that thing that is really painful for me. Yeah. So that's why it's been, it was such a blessing because they could have kept me along for another three or four years before they pulled the trigger, but they had to pull the trigger because I wasn't up to standard. Um, as it was, I got to go explore. It was a painful learning, but wow. Yeah. Did you ever end up back in the classroom? Well, um, I did, uh, actually. Um, and let me just give you uh, sort yeah. of a, a, yeah, a, fill a in way the gaps forward. Yeah. After I, um, I was living in Provo, and I was in a consulting firm for three and a half or four years with some people who were dear friends, I went out on my own because um, my dad had died. Um, I moved my mother out here. Jan's parents were struggling. And so I went out on my own so that I could reduce the amount of time I was away. And then um, uh, I went to Dell Computers. Uh, I was at Dell. I was the head of HR when I went. Um, and I was there for 10 years. Seven years, uh, I was at Citigroup in New York City. And then I got an opportunity, and I was 64. No, was I 64? Um, it would have been in, four, yeah, it was 1964. I got an opportunity to go teach at Harvard Business School. Hmm. And I thought, first of all, I was old enough that I thought, this is never going to come my way again. Yeah. Right? This is this is your chance. If you want to put a different punctuation mark on your academic life, and I did. Um, so that's when I, I went and taught yeah. at Harvard and had a great experience. Were you in the business school? Or? Yeah, okay. at the business school. Nice. It was really wonderful. Yeah. It was just a great experience. And um, at the end of about four years, I told them I would stay between three and five. Um, at the end of about four, the learning curve for me started to flatten a bit. Um, they came and asked if I would stay a fifth year. They had some some spots that they couldn't fill easily, and so I stayed for the fifth year. But by the time I left, as much as I liked it, there there's other things I want to do, hmm. right? Other yeah. things I want. And it goes back to that principle of you know you that when things are hard, you want you want yeah, a challenge right. in, in what you're doing, right? right? So yeah. that and that's you know. The Dell story is similar to that. The city story is yeah. similar to that. Um, and so I was there at HBS, and I moved here to Salt Lake about uh, two and a half, three years ago, something like that. Nice. And that now you're in retired life with a few. Retired is such an ugly word. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I advise two separate companies here in town, each for a day a week. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I have one client in New York City. Um, and then... Remarkably, I got called to be the bishop of my local community and uh, my local congregation here. Yeah. Um, and so it feels, it doesn't feel like retired. It feels yeah, you busy. got plenty to do. Yeah, there's there's a lot to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's jump into some of these principles. Uh, you sent me a list here of uh, things as you reflect back on your professional life and career, uh, what stands out. And the, the first one is uh, find your voice. Uh, yeah. What comes to mind with, with that concept? Well, um, 
when um, remember I started in academics, thinking I was going to be in an academics, and there. And if you ask an academic, um, so what's the most effective form of leadership? Right. Yeah. And the first thing they'll say, well, it all depends. Right. It <laughs> yeah. all depends on these variables. If it's this way, it's this. It was. Well, uh, I thought that was great because you never had to take a stand. And I didn't know what the you know best form was. And so I bought into this. It all depends, you know, hook, line and sinker, because I could in some facile way say, well, if you want to do this, this is what you should do. But I would never commit. And and the notion of it all depends, of course, that's true. But when people ask you that question, you have to have a point of view, right? You have to be able to say, here's what I think. There's some other variables you ought to consider, but here's what I think, uh, you know, would be make the most uh, the most sense. Now, I also um, went into a profession at Dell and at City. I was the head of HR, and I went into a, a profession where the at the time and a little less so now, people would say, "Well, we're being dissed as a function. We're not as the people don't treat us. You know, we need to get a seat at the table," which used to drive me crazy when they would say <laughs> this, because I've never been in a company or a situation where there wasn't a seat at any table if you knew what you were talking about, Hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so one thing for me that I've learned is I'm going to have, I want to have a point of view uh, on any situation that I'm in, even if it's uninformed. I don't mind if I say something and it's wrong because then I go, oh, that's a, you're right. I made it, I made a mistake. But I really do believe that anybody in any situation has to be ready to have a point of view about the work that they do and be ready to share that sometimes in awkward circumstances. Mm. So I have um, some say I've oversteered on making sure I have an opinion (laughs) sometimes with less information than I should have. But I really do believe because when I interview other people, Sometimes they'll say, what are you really looking for? I'm looking for somebody who can get things done, and I'm looking for somebody with a point of view, Mm -hmm. right? Because you can't, I don't think you can be successful without knowing those two things. Yeah. You get, and it helps you avoid sort of just being that wishy-washy person, and that's not helpful. Or not just wishy-washy, but just sitting quiet. Oh, yeah. You know, just sort of you're too quiet in the conversation, and... um, and when, in fact, you're not going to be able to get ahead or add value if you're not ready to take a chance. Yeah. So there's a lot of great business schools out in the country and around the world. The one unique benefit of Harvard Business School is it's that a case method. Three times a day, you read a case, and then you have to defend your perspective on it. And you have to defend it in front of 92 other people who are just waiting for you to make a mistake. Mm. Um, But what you learn is to figure out, here's what the situation is, where do I come out? And I think that's hugely valuable for people. So, I mean, individuals should definitely 
sort of move forward with an opinion, even if they're maybe not a hundred percent sure why hundred percent behind that opinion. Right. But there's a, there's a lot of ways if yeah. you're not a hundred percent sure, but you, you think you're onto something, you can say, well, let me ask you guys a couple questions. You ask the questions and then you can make a statement. And other times you say, all right, you guys correct me if I'm off base here, but let me, let me tell you what I'm thinking about this situation. So you can buffer it um, so you don't try to come across like Mr. Know-it-all, mm-hmm. but you can't just sit there um, and watch it. You have to take that step that says, I'm in the mix yeah. here. I have, I, I, I need to share what I'm thinking. Yeah. And as you gain uh, you know, more information, as you venture out into that, you can and a little, adjust. And a little more experience yeah. and a little more confidence. It becomes easier to nice. do. So finding your voice is all about just being, uh, you know, being direct and, and holding and, on to an opinion. Yeah. And, and letting it out and not just sitting there wondering, don't call on me or, yeah. Because that's how you lose a seat at the table, uh, is if you're just taking up the space and not adding value. Nice. Anything else around this concept of, of finding your voice? So, you know, so. No. Okay. Uh, next one is focus on what you are, not what you aren't. Let me tell you, to do this, I have to tell you about how I got to Dell. Um, if uh, I didn't fully explain this, but I had left, I was in consulting. It was a consulting firm of one at this time because I was out on my own. Mm-hmm. And I got a, com- a call from a friend who uh, called me up and said, would you like to interview to be the head of HR at Dell? And I, you know, I said, sure, because I knew I wasn't going to be selected because I had no experience but I thought, wouldn't it be fun to make it far enough in the process that um, I'd meet Michael? Because he was over, Michael Dell was on every page and 33-year-old wunderkind. And so I go through the process. And one of the things I learned is um, you don't have to be the best candidate. If there's a pool of people, you just have to be one above the cut. And so as it turned out, they started with 15 candidates. I was number eight. Uh, It turns out after that, they cut it from eight to three. I was number three. And eventually I got in to interview at Dell. And on the first, what terrified me ahead of time was I had no experience in a corporation, none. And, and yet, I'm interviewing for the top job in HR on this rocket ship of a company. And what I was terrified about is, what if they ask me, who do you think you are? You don't have any experience, you know? So <laughs> I was, you know, sweating. And the first interview, guy walks in, Mike Lambert. Uh, he was in the product development, classic engineer, gruff. And he sits down and he looks at my resume and he turns it over twice. He reads it and turns it over twice and says, "Um, what job are you interviewing for? (laughs) And I said, I'm interviewing for um, the HR job. Which HR job? (laughs) I said, the HR job. And he takes one more look at the resume and he asks that question. And he says, you can't, you're not a candidate for that job because you don't have any experience. And there's very few moments in my life, certainly my professional life, where I thought there was divine intervention 
And one of them was that moment. Because in the moment, I said something that I never practiced or ever thought of. But in the moment, I said, Mike, that is so interesting because I think I have the perfect background for this job. And then once that's out of my, 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 my mouth, I have to keep going. And I say, if what you're looking for is old school HR, people who do um, you know, labor relations or people who are in charge of compliance or any of that, if that's what you're looking for, then let's end this conversation because I'm not that. And I said, but if you're, I thought Dell was looking for something unique. I thought Dell was looking for somebody to come in and craft a solution for HR that's different. And I listed off a half half dozen things that I could do. I could, you know, build a team. I could work with senior managers. I could do all this. And I said, so you tell me, if you want the old model, then let's just end this right now. But if you want something else, and I always thought you did, then we can have a conversation. <laughs> no, no, he said, that's what I, I want, that new model. And, um, and in that moment, I realized I'd been overly focused on what I wasn't and not what I was. And I changed my approach to every interview from then on. <laughs> and I have seen that not just in myself, but people who come and talk to me and they say, well, I don't have the perfect background for this. And, or they say, you know, I haven't really had enough experience or I, I can't really, you know, nobody cares about that stuff. What they want to know is, what can you do? Tell me what you've done. Tell me what you can do. And then we'll see if that's a fit. So for me, I've learned no matter where where I go, I'm going to take a shot. If there's a, something I want to do, I'm going to tell them, here's what I can do. And they say, well, it's not quite this. I go, well, let me tell you the advantages of the approach that I would take here. I focus on what I am and not what I'm not. Yeah. What advice would you give to maybe a young professional who's still struggling to figure out uh, what it is they are? Well, you know what I think? Um, I think they'd be, it's easy to plan that ahead of time to say anybody that I've met out there, there are things that they have that are strengths. Here's what I know how to do. And you can practice this stuff ahead of time. It's not like what goes on in an interview is unpredictable uh-huh. um, because they'll ask you your strengths and your weaknesses. And you can practice this saying, here's what I am, hmm. right? And you can say, I'm really good quantitatively. I work well um, with others. I have evidence of having you know, shown leadership. And let me tell you what that is. Even if your answer is not a direct answer to a question, you, you twist it in a way to say, you know, here's what I am. You're no worse off because if you agreed and say, well, you're right, I don't have that experience, the interview's over. So you may as well go down swinging, right? You may take a swing and say, this is what I am. Yeah. This is what I can do. Yeah. And naturally, I mean, the your confidence comes to the surface and it comes across a lot easier, right? Yeah. yeah. Because everybody's going to respond to somebody who feels, sounds confident yeah. um, because you know interviewing is such a um, a hit and miss 
uh, operation. And if somebody comes across and you say, well, he doesn't have or she doesn't have the perfect background, but wow, she sounded great. Yeah. You know, yeah. that was a fun interview. You know, yeah. she asked me great questions. She pushed me. You know, I really I'm a believer. Yeah. And you may not you may not be a perfect fit for that job, but they may think, well, let's find a place for this person. Let's yeah. let's we got to have somebody. This is the kind of person we're looking for. May not have the qualifications that we're looking for, but every now and again, yeah, um, you take a chance on somebody to say, I'd like to have him around. Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, next principle is set limits. How do you go about doing that? Uh, this is. Um, I've had, I was a bishop twice. I was a bishop in New York City for a singles ward for three and a half years. And I may come back to that later. And I bet I got a ton of questions on there around work-life balance. You know, <laughs> it's hard for me to find somebody to marry because um, I, I'm working all the time. Or lots of conversations with people who are married and say, you know, I'm wasting, you know, I'm spending all my time at work. My spouse is grumpy um, with me. Um, and so this question of work-life balance. And, and then when I was the head of HR for these companies, they would come to me and say, City has to make it easier for me to have work-life balance. Or at Dell, you know, when I got to Dell, I got there in 1999. We finished the year with an $8 billion run rate. That's where we were. Um, and within, and so that was end of 97. By the end of 2000, what, three years, we had revenue of $30 billion, right? So it had quadrupled essentially in three years. Um, and we worked people pretty hard because there was a lot of work. Here's what I learned. If you work 16 hours at your job, we're going to take every 16 and make you feel guilty about the 17th, right? <laughs> if you work, uh, if you say, uh, um, ready, if you're going to give us 12 hours, um, a, a, a day, we're going to take all 12 and make you feel guilty about the 13th. Somewhere along the line, you have to draw a line. I have to draw a line that says, this is the balance that I'm willing to have. Um, and I'm going to set that. I'm going to make the set. Are there downsides to that? Of course. Are there people who are going to work harder than you and they may get ahead in the short run? entirely possible. But the company is never going to make that easy. They want you to work 24 hours a day if they thought they could get away with it, right? Yeah. I always wanted them to work 24 hours a day. <laughs> and so for for me, I most of this happened as my kids were older. I found that I could work 12 hours a day Day in, day out, week in, week week out. I did that at Dell. I did it at City, but I never took work home. Right? I never did work at home on the on the weekdays, and I never worked on the weekends. Hmm. 
at all. That was the balance that I had, and I just—that's uh, where I drew the drew the line. Now, were there exceptions? Every now and again, there was there was things that I made an exception for, but it was rare because you have to find out. Nobody's going to make your life easy. Nobody's going to say. You know, here are the limits. I know you've got a family, so you only have to work eight hours. Um, set them yeah. yourself. You have to be comfortable with that. And is there anything you didn't go about communicating that with with those that manage you? Or I t- um, with those that manage me. No, I just did it. Hmm. I just did it um, because. I was usually in the in the office before anybody else was, so they really didn't know when I got there. Uh, <laughs> so show up early. So <laughs> I was. So when I left at six thirty, um, they didn't know if I'd worked fourteen hours. You know, yeah. um, I just never did. I just said, "This is what I can do." Yeah. Right. This yeah. is what I can do, and I stuck to it. Yeah. Made it work. Any other uh, limits that you were very intentional about setting? Um, well, one of the the um, principles that I've got down is asking for help. Mm-hmm. Um, this would have been in. I, I went to city in two thousand and eight, February of two thousand and eight, which was just the exact moment that the floor fell out from the uh, financial services uh, business. And it was really, uh, really difficult for a long time. Um, And uh, there were weekends where we left on Friday and not sure if they would open the doors on Monday. And City, at the start of that crisis, was the biggest bank in the world. Um, Hmm. So... um, I got called, and in the midst of that, I got called to be the bishop in that singles ward. So this would have been in early 2009. And I was, I had, uh, for the first time in my career, started to go to Sunday morning meetings, and it was a meeting of all the corporate heads. Um, CFO, the chief legal counsel, the compliance guy, the um, we had the chief of staff for the chairman. And this was at just a time where it was important for everybody else. I didn't go in every Sunday, but maybe every other because <laughs> the pressure was there. And then I got called as bishop. And wow. so I went to, and I, uh, this... <laughs> I went to the next meeting, and I loved these people. Foxhole friends, you know. Um, it really, they were such dear friends. And I said, here's the deal. Let me tell you what I just said yes to. And um, and I said, and um, I need to, these meetings are difficult for me. So here's my request. My request is, if we can schedule these at another time, it would be great. Um, I said, but I know my fiduciary responsibility here at a time of crisis, so if we have to meet on Sunday, I'll find a way to do this. But I could use some help here. 
And um, Kevin Thurm, uh, at the moment, looked at me. Kevin was a um, conservative Jew. And he said, we're not doing any more Sunday meetings. Hmm. We're not doing another one. We'll find another time. And everybody said, yeah, this is fine. We only did this because it was convenient, but we'll find another time. And I never um, went to another Sunday meeting. Um, But only because I asked. Yeah. I need some help. Um, And that's really hard for me. Um, It's hard this time around as a bishop um, because I know I don't have quite as demanding a schedule as some others. And it's really hard for me to ask for help. But I will say I've never asked for help as a bishop. I've never asked for help from friends at work where they didn't say, sure. Yeah. But for me, anyway, I always thought it was a sign of weakness um, asking for it. Yeah. Yeah. And you really just spell out that all the, the, the situation that you're facing. Yeah. And it's not like yeah. you're looking to sleep in on Sundays. Or, yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? yeah. But it, it made that job so much easier and yeah. better because I was not comfortable with going to work anyway. I just yeah. got in the crisis. Yeah. Felt like I had to for a while. And, and you, you felt back, are you reminded of that, that principle in, in the tough times still? Just how can I ask for help? Or? Um, I've, I've, what I learned from that is um, I have to start with that as my opening sentence. Instead mm-hmm. of, hey, can you guys come and do this? I have to stop and say, Bob, I need some help. And if you say those words, people, yeah. okay, everybody they want wants to help. Yeah, everybody, everybody wants to help. wants to help because everybody wants to have to be that person, you know? Yeah. I want to be the person who, when somebody needs help, they step in. I want to be that person. I've tried to be that person because I think about Kevin Thurm, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I just have to frame it. I need this kind of help. Yeah. Next principle is that you can't lead from the rear. I learned this from um, Kevin Rollins. Kevin Rollins um, was became the CEO of Dell while I was there. He was the one that introduced me to the company. Hmm. Um, and I, I love, <laughs> I love Kevin. Um, in fact, he was here in town this last week and. We skied uh, for a day. I love this man. Um, And he had a principle that he used while he was the CEO, which was, I can never ask somebody um, to do something that I'm not willing to do first. Hmm. And so um, if there was, we developed the process for, you know, 360 feedback on this very top team, 14 of us. And, and he said, here's what we're going to do. Every one of us is going to get a 360. And then they're going to come in here and talk about all the, what they learned, you know, which is a little awkward with your colleagues. And Kevin, and he said, and Michael and I are going to go first. Um, and from that on, he then we couldn't complain because it wasn't just as awkward for Kevin and Michael as it was for us. 
um, and I thought, I'm never, I don't ever want to um, be somebody, I'm going to ask somebody else to do something I didn't do. So when there were layoffs, I did layoffs uh, as well. Um, where there were uh, bad news, there was bad news to be delivered. I delivered the bad news to the firm, I mean, to the my group, not somebody else and have or have it done locally. I always felt like I had to do what I wanted them to do, but I had to do it first. Mm-hmm. And as a bishop, um, what that means is um, if there's snow to be shoveled, I got to go, right? If there's somebody to move that needs moving, I've got to go. Um, when there's um, somebody who has to show up to put up chairs, I have to be there. Not because I can't delegate it and because I can always cop a plea and say, well, I'm the bishop. I'm so busy, you know, I'm going <laughs> to leave this to, you know, you, you know, lesser folks. Um, and that just doesn't fly. Yeah. You know, you got to lead first. And you can't tell people what to do. You have to show them why it's important. Yeah, and everybody wants to follow that that person. And everybody is finds it. I find it fun to go down and and do this. You know, so honestly, um, if I look back on the last three or four months, the most fun I've had is shoveling snow um, with the guys in my ward. It's just because. There's some magic about physical labor, right? Working side by side with somebody on something physical. I, I don't know, but it's um, there's a there's a relation. It's a relationship building thing, um, and so yeah, it's I want to be I want to be down there, and 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 because if there is a time that I can't go, I want them to think. Bishop couldn't make it versus the bishop doesn't do this, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. Um, and then uh, last one is exercise. Is this literal exercise? <laughs> yeah. Get to the gym? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is. Yeah. It is exactly that. Gary Crittenden, who lives right above me here, um, has been a friend for 45 years uh, at this point. But Gary, he didn't teach me this, but he gave words to it uh, when he talked about exercise. I have done some form of exercise or some form of exercise program my whole adult life. Um, I had to change it. When I first started doing this, I would work out in the afternoon. And then when we had kids, it's really hard to come home to your wife who's put up with the kids and say, I'm going to go for a run, right? (laughs) That's a very expensive hour. So I shifted to early mornings. And so I started getting up earlier and earlier so that I could go out and run. Um, When I lived down here in Provo, um, I went out one morning. um, I was right up by the temple there. And I went out and it was pitch black and it was cold. It was like one or two degrees and I'm running down the road and I run into, literally run into Russ Hancock. Now, Russell Hancock was um, on my mission. I think he worked in the 
the library sciences. But I, it was so dark, I banged right into him. And we stopped and we laughed about this. And I said, Russ, what? what are we thinking? What are we doing out here? And he laughed and he said, but you know, it's kind of a monastic experience. It was like the perfect description of all my early morning exercise. And so I would run around the Esplanade in Boston. I would run in my neighborhood and I got to New York. It turns out that um, they ask you not to go in the park uh, before five o'clock in the morning. And so I would time it. We were like three or four blocks away. I would time it to where I hit strawberry fields into the park right at five o'clock. Um, and there's always somebody down there, but uh-huh. I, you know, nobody's going to mug you. You know, it's got to be a hearty mugger uh, to show up at five o'clock in the morning at strawberry fields. Um, and, um, and not only did it, I, I always feel more energy in the day, later in the day, if I do something in the morning. I just, I'm smarter. Hmm. Um, I'm, uh, facts come. And, and I've had more inspiration about church things, about my own life on that time. It's because it was, it's not now, but it was the only time that I had that was all mine, hmm. right? Didn't ha- I didn't have to talk to somebody. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to do work. And I wouldn't ever walk, run out there and say, I'm going to do this, and I want to think through what I'm going to do in the day. I would just go out and magic. Yeah. And I felt better. Um, and so I still do something every morning. This left knee has given me a little trouble, so I'm on a spin bike, but... We don't miss many times. That's great. That's inspiring. Um, so I want to speak to me about uh, your time as a professor, like speaking to that that demographic who's c- coming through school, especially MBA school. You know, you're, they're reflecting on your time at, at Harvard. Um, what advice would you give to that demographic, that, that group of people who's just trying to get through a really di- difficult or hard program of, of business school? Um, chances are your career is going to work out fine. It's going to work out fine. At the time, there are setbacks. I know I got fired, right? My first (laughs) job, I got fired. So I understand setbacks. And yet, you know, I, I think the way we react to those is it makes it work out. Hmm. There's a lot of anxiety about should I, you know, should I choose this this uh, a consulting firm? Do I want to go to McKinsey or should I choose this startup? And I would say, you know, I don't know. You know, you're going to have to try it out. You know, think mm-hmm. about it, pray about it. But uh, this is doctrine. From from Bishop McKinnon, <laughs> not anybody else's doctrine. Right. But I don't know that the Lord really cares what we do professionally. Hmm. I think what he really wants from us is if I'm at McKinsey or I'm at a startup, what he wants to know 
is we're going to stay on this path, right? That we're going to figure out, we're going to focus, we're going to live the gospel, and we're going to raise a family that, you know, helps with that. And there may be bigger money to make somewhere else, but the career is important. But I think that's the reason sometimes that when we pray about a place to go or a job, why you don't get McKinsey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when Jan and I, um, we had an opportunity to go to New York about a year before when uh, that I went with City. And we did pray about that. And Jan, Jan's reaction, because she's, I think, the more spiritual one in the family, her reaction was, I don't think... Um, I don't think it was the job that I care about, she said, but I really think that we're supposed to go to New York City. Well, it turns out it didn't work out on that one. But when it came around again, when the city job came around, um, she felt the same way, which is we didn't know how hard it would be but it was, she said, the only thing I feel strongly is we sh we're supposed to go to New York, which is nonsensical. <laughs> Turned out to be right, <laughs> you know, but so it's a, it's a wandering answer to what would I tell him? It's going to be fine. Yeah. That doesn't mean there's ups and downs, but the trend line going to be good. Yeah. Any other uh, principle or concept that uh, we haven't covered or that we... No, I'm fine. Cool. Thanks for listening to me. Yeah, for sure. Uh, last question I have is uh, just as you reflect on your 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 spiritual, uh, the spiritual side of yourself, your testimony, your, uh, your perspective of the gospel, how has that uh, informed your professional life? Well, I've never found a contradiction Right, I've never had a contradiction where uh, I felt like my integrity was called, you know, if I was at a place they were doing bad things. I've never had that. Mm -hmm. One thing that has become a lot more true is I've become much more comfortable talking to people uh, about my beliefs, about, you know, where I was started. I think that that trend really I mean, it didn't make any difference in in Provo, of course, but um, but I would uh, go to Texas. A lot of Christians in Texas, you know, and so while they don't don't fully agree with this, they go to church every Sunday, um, and they and they have strong beliefs in Christ, and they know, and so we could sit and talk about that. And I found that to be so. Um, so easy to talk to people about my religion in Texas. And then you get to New York, and it's filled with Jews. And Jews understand this far better than anybody else. Uh, it's crazy. And so I've found in the back half of my life, it's much more comfortable to, for me to say, this is who I am. This is what I believe. And this is why I behave the way I do and why it's important to me. And I don't 
go down and bear my testimony, you know, I don't feel like I have to do that because I just want them to know who I am and why it's important. And and they'll, uh, I've had some of the best Old Testament conversations in New York and at Boston with people who were Jewish because, I mean, they've been talking about this stuff for longer than we have. And it's just been wonderful to be me, me, right? Um, so it has, I've, I've evolved enough, even when it's awkward, I'm really much more comfortable talking about what I believe. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.